everyone i'm ishika and i'm akshay the thing about wildlife is anyone can fall in love with it through science photography literature or innocent observation sharing their love today is nupur kale a marine biologist and conservationist who has worked extensively with turtles and people So on today's episode, we are, we are absolutely stoked to have with us Nupur Kale, a project associate with the Marine Program at the Wildlife Conservation Society India. Nupur has worked with sea turtle biology and conservation for nearly a decade in research projects across India in places like Odisha, Maharashtra, and the Lakshadweep Islands, as well as for short periods of time in Sri Lanka and Costa Rica. Her main research interests are sea turtle biology and conservation. She's also interested in working with communities to ensure effective conservation and sustainable livelihoods, which is a very interesting and uh, diverse list of things to talk about today. So welcome, Nupur. It's such a pleasure to have you with us here on the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, you know, with people who've probably experienced the same things, but in different spaces. So... it's nice you'll understand my pain perhaps <laughs> or the lack of it <laughs> oh, we're, we're really excited and uh, you're also uh, the first person we are speaking to on the podcast that has worked so predominantly uh, in the marine side of things so we're very uh, happy to have you here and lots to chat about um so we're going to start uh, you know right at the beginning like we usually do and we recently got to know uh, that you spent much of your early years traveling north india and you come from an armed forces background which involved a lot of travel and eventually you landed up in pune and uh, pune is also one of the cities that has a terrific bunch of young people interested in nature and there seems to be a very curious mentality uh, towards natural history and preserving some of those places and many people who we know have also ended up making it part of their career um so is this something that influenced you as well i mean what is it about pune and this nature loving culture that they have so very honestly you know i have thought about this a lot because a lot of people have asked me this question and um, when i really think about it i think it had a lot to do with my um, upbringing um, as an army kid um, because my dad was mostly posted in you know semi urban areas in fact pune was the only city that in the first 20 years of my life that i've lived in otherwise it was all areas on the outskirts of some major town not even a city um and you know i've lived close to the satpuras my dad was posted in multiple parts of the himalayas um so i think for me it wasn't so much that i love nature but it was i feel comfortable in spaces where there's you know nature is the predominant factor rather than your concrete jungle um of course coming to pune you know even though it's a city um you know we are spoiled because there's a hill just like 5 minutes walking distance from my house um i see like sunbirds and bee eaters and what not from my uh, bedroom window um so i like i said you know i don't think it was so much to do with the company i had because honestly speaking a lot of my friends actually most of my friends are like engineers or doctors at this point not quite the bird watchers or the entomologists one would expect but um yeah i think it was the spaces that um 
influenced me a lot um and my parents you know i they my dad especially he loves driving to places so all our tourism within the country has been driving to areas and you know when you just go across different landscapes just on one trip alone um it's just absolutely wondrous like it, it yeah you know you just love it so much that you can't forget it even as you're growing up you know even when we were in pune there were points when i know my brother and i were just like ah oh, you know i wish we could go back to those uh, pristine uh, places where you know there are very few human beings um, and you know you can actually hear sounds of nature rather than just you know somebody's car honking or like an ambulance and things like that um but even even when i went to pune and when i started my undergrad i think i was surrounded by a lot of people really enthusiastic um in nature um and i, I definitely i think they were way more passionate than i am um and you know it tends to rub off when you hang out with such people it tends to rub off on you and um yeah you sort of become a part of that but um i think secondly it was all those lovely discovery and animal planet documentaries that we've all grown up watching i think it was a part of our tv curriculum um and yeah you know people like steve owen and jeff cowen um i don't think i would do the things they did but um, it was definitely exciting to watch all the spaces they visited um especially like steve owen because he was from australia you know he was just surrounded by some of the most beautiful places um on this planet so it was incredible and i think yeah that definitely served as an inspiration and uh, when it was time to actually get into this field i was like yeah i think i can do this i think i would love to do this um, this is where i'm more, most comfortable yeah that is uh, highly relatable because when i went when i tell people i grew up in bangalore it's not the same you know it was uh, there were jungle cats around and butterflies and all of that and i think this is such a common thread among people in this field people who study uh, anything related to nature as a profession uh, that they now are tending to emphasize holding on to the nature that's in the city and like not letting it escape and maybe perhaps it's because they recognize uh, that we all recognize the importance of that uh, growing up uh i think we could now move on to uh, what you did after that so uh, soon after your undergrad you uh, went on to study sea turtles and you've been studying sea turtles in one way or another uh, for more, almost a decade now um and you've spent a lot of your time doing potentially your first love in terms of your uh, study system and you've explored many species and fields along the way of course but why turtles where did it start and uh, when that's another great question and i think i'm my answer is going to be quite the letdown um so it wasn't so much sea turtles i was interested in marine biology um but you know when it was time to choose what do i do for my masters um i decided to go for like conservation biology which kind of um took terrestrial marine just all systems together instead of just marine because um i suppose i was a little unsure if i would actually love marine biology when i got into it so i decided to to do something more general um but when it was time to do my thesis um i was like okay now maybe i can give it a shot and um, one of the professors previously had had a student who um, worked on sea turtles and he asked me 
if I would be interested in working, you know, working on sea turtles for my thesis. Um, and strangely, now that I look back, I also did a couple of my assignments during my master's, which were on sea turtles, completely unplanned. Um, but so when it was time to do my thesis, I was quite aware of what to do and how to navigate things. Um, and of course, you know, then I went to Sri Lanka and did my thesis there. And it was, I just had a great time, you know, it was just so peaceful. I was, you know, it it would make me very calm, uh, just the entire aspect of it. It was marvelous, like, you know, watching that sea turtle and green turtles, you know, they're giant, they're super heavy. Um, you would see like this female green turtle, you know, climb up on the beach to lay her eggs. It would take hours, but, you know, she would still go through that effort. I know it's a more mechanical process, but at the same time, it was just incredible to watch that, you know, when she wanted to nest, she would come up and nest regardless of what was going around. Um, and that was amazing to watch. Um, and just in general, you know, even volunteering at that hatchery was such a great experience. Um, and I'm going to, again, pitch in some things that people frown upon, but charismatic species, sea turtles look great. Hatchlings are super cute. <laughs> you can't not fall in love with hatchlings. Um, so yeah, I think that that definitely played a huge role. And, you know, once I finished my master's and I came back to India and it was time to start working my first, um, I was sort of torn between sea turtles or community-based conservation. Um, but thankfully, luckily I got an opportunity, you know, to work in Orissa. Um, and I think that kind of changed it for me because I saw my first mass nesting and it's scary because you have like these hundreds of turtles, you know, coming onto the beach. Um, it, a lot of times it's just like two or three human beings, including you who are on the beach and you're surrounded by turtles. Um, it was incredible. And uh, yeah, you know, I it just never gets old. It never gets old. I've seen like three or four mass nestings at this point. I've seen hundreds of green turtles at this point, but every time I see a turtle, it's exciting. Um, and in between, I even considered, you know, maybe trying out something different um, when I was like 24, 25, just to see if there's something else that I might enjoy. Um, but yeah, you know what? I went back to see turtles. <laughs> I tried very hard, but yeah. Um, and it, it's comfortable. Now for me, it's very comfortable working on sea turtles um, because I just know everything about the, you know, biology or what is required for conservation. I think I know all the right people in India, especially, and some abroad um, who've been great help. Um, so at this point, it's a matter of comfort. And of course, you know, the excitement I get every time I see one sea turtle. Um, yeah, it's unparalleled, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, no, I actually I had, you know, like a couple of follow ups to ask you about how you could possibly retain that kind of focus for so long on a single uh, species. But I think what you said is so self explanatory. I mean, just I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and imagine, you know, looking at a mass, uh, <laughs> you know, like looking at an Aribada for the first time with hundreds of sea turtles. And I'm sure that's quite life changing. Uh, <laughs> site to it is it yeah 
I, I just don't know. You know, I've never seen anything of that sort. I had never before that. Like you see all these animals on safaris and everything, you know, and you will see. I mean, I've never been to Africa. I'll probably have a better experience in Africa when, you know, when you just see like herds and herds of wild beast or something. Um, that might be a similar experience. But here it, it's just, you know, five, six days of just like thousands of turtles around you. Turtles who don't care about you, turtles who just want to nest. Um, and it's also a little inspirational also to a certain extent where, you know what, like be focused sort of a thing. Um, so I think that, and just to add to it, I, I feel like it's also been um, support from a lot of people, you know, of course, parents um, first and foremost, um, they have, they don't quite understand, like they're super proud of me. I don't think they understand completely what I do or what actually goes on behind the scenes. Um, but they have always been supportive. Like even when I wanted to go to Costa Rica to do a research assistantship, they were scared. Um, they were like, you're going to a country where we do not know anyone, where you know the language, but you're not like fluent in it. Um, we don't have any friends, um, absolutely nobody. The person we know close like the area closest is the US so which is still far off uh, how are you going to do this but they were like okay you know what if you think it's going to help you if it's going to you know help your career go for it be safe text us every five minutes um, but I think their support and definitely the support of a lot of my friends or you know mentors in the wildlife field also because, um, you know, we all have moments when we doubt ourselves. And like I said, you know, I was considering changing, just experimenting with something else in between. Um, but a lot of my friends um, supported me and said, you know what, A, that's fine if you want to do it. B, it's also fine if you want to come back to sea turtles. Um, but yeah, I think human beings and turtles have been instrumental in sort of helping me focus on what I want to do and how I should do it. And sometimes it's fine to not do certain things the right way. I think, I mean, there's also not, I don't think there is a single right way <laughs> also. I mean, considering uh, so many people who we've, you know, got the chance to talk to even through the podcast itself, everyone's had such a unique journey and how they ended up where they are. I think it's really hard to chalk out you know, the way to get to where you are. Um, but, you know, also what uh, one thing I, that I wanted to talk about when you mentioned the first time you went and worked in Sri Lanka and just how beautiful and calming and wonderful it is. Uh, so I also thought I'd take like a step back and ask you about whether you think this marine ecosystem just leaves you as a different person as you compare it to people who work on land or, you know, they seem to be in a different personality genre altogether, you know, like complete, <laughs> they seem they come off as a lot more collected and put together and self-assured. <laughs> is that, is that true or is that a facade? <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think that's a facade. I think we're very good at hiding that on the inside we're actually crying. Um, but um, yeah, you know, if I have to compare, I think first of all, the marine world of whatever biology or conservation I think it's such a small community um, and regardless of you know in what part of the world you are it's very easy to 
have similar experiences. So even, you know, if I'm talking to someone right now sitting in Colombia, I'm pretty sure that person and I have experienced a lot of the same things, even though we're on two different ends of the world. Um, and like I said, you know, experiences bind people together. So because this community is so small, it's it's just easier for us to kind of navigate through things as a group rather than as an individual also. Um, but yeah, I don't think we're the most sorted out people because, you know, like I said, uh, experience changes you, even if you think you are the most sorted out person, something like weather conditions, choppy seas, <laughs> permits will just come your way and yeah, just ruin it all for you. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I think one of these uh, in very interesting learnings that uh, you described through one's career uh, was what you wrote in the Conservation Optimism website. Uh, Conservation Optimism is, uh, I think, this uh, group where people talk about the positive stories of conservation and how that can keep people inspired. Uh, and you describe a very interesting, I wanted to pick your brain on that. So uh, you describe the benefits of ex situ and in situ conservation. That was what you went in with. And you found some very non-intuitive results where there was a certain alignment of ecology and economic incentive where people were, you know, keeping the, uh, the hatchlings and hatcheries potentially in conditions that are not optimal ecologically, but it was giving them a lot of revenue. Uh, and this makes you rethink a lot of cultural things that we have in, as baggage, especially in the Indian conservation circles where, you know, it's like, oh my God, no, no, we can't even think of some monetizing these sort of actions. Uh, but I think uh, some, I think Dakshin, who you've been associated with quite a bit, uh, advocates for this. So uh, do you think it's a cultural issue? Do you think uh, that India particularly has this sort of, uh, uh, you know, don't touch wildlife, it'll break or some sort of an approach? Not really, you know, I, I don't think it's cultural at all because culturally, actually, we are so used to growing up around these things. You know, we are all comfortable with it. We know, um, especially now, you know, communities that live in or with wildlife just know the do's and don'ts when it comes to interacting with the wildlife for most part. Um, so I'm not sure if it's a cultural thing, but I think, you know, also having said that, if you think about it now, um, you do see a lot of these responsible ecotourism initiatives that are happening around the country, um, which are for most part run by the local communities, you know, with help from some external agency, be it the government or be it some NGO. So I, I don't think it's it's difficult in India, but I think India being a vast country, you know, it's, you know, I can try something in Bangalore. I am pretty sure the same thing will not be successful in Mysore. Like it's that simple. Um, and, you know, after a point, there's only so many times one can experiment, you know, we're all kind of uh, running out of money to do our own projects. Um, and conservation is all about experimentation and, you know, figuring out what is the right way to do things um, or not the right way to do things. So I think it is possible, but what it requires is, you know, tremendous patience for one, tremendous funding, um, sort of taking into consideration everything and everyone that will be involved in that project, which I feel bad to say, but, you know, that is something that 
is quite lacking in our country you know we always end up missing out that one participant who is just the most crucial uh, you know person in that um, collaboration um but yeah you know like i i've worked in areas like velas which um, which is a great place because you know you have the local communities pitching in uh, towards sea turtle conservation sea turtle conservation is helping them you know have tourism in their areas they are able to promote their culture because of these homestays which are very rustic you know there's no you won't find acs or any fancy beds or any fancy amenities it's very basic um so yeah you know it is possible but i think it's you know the stars have to be aligned sort of a thing um and uh, also the i also feel there has to be that sense of wanting to work together but at the same time be willing to compromise on a few things um and remembering that you know the focus has to be conservation and livelihoods together i think a lot of times what happens is one trumps the other after a certain point of time like it all starts with great intentions and everyone being on board but you know like 5 6 years down the line either people will start thinking more about the money or there'll be some you know super enthusiastic conservationist who's just like no i want to save this habitat people's livelihoods are not that important sort of a thing um and unfortunately you know it you know you can try your best but i think even across the world we've all seen that things always start out wonderfully but at some point they just hit a roadblock even sri lanka for that matter you know i mean it it was i really i i, I used to take like printouts of you know scientific papers and show it to the hatchery manager and be like hey you know what this is what the scientists have found out and this is what we should be doing um and it will also help your hatchery to a certain extent and you know i i was lucky enough to be at that hatchery where he was receptive um to my feedback um so it worked out i think if i had been somewhere where the owner was a little more you know strong stronger personality he probably wouldn't have listened to me um but yeah you know like it's just it has it's it's a marriage of sorts everything you know there there is compromise it takes time it requires patience um i hope as a country we reach that stage at some point i think we are there somewhere um it's just a matter of you know all of us coming together and um not being selfish to a certain extent and um, being more inclusive of all the participants and i think it it's doable everything's doable you know where there's a will there's a way so yeah fingers crossed let's hope for the best yeah all of those things are uh, so many of those things are themes that resonate from our short experience in the field as well i think talking to exp- people with experience they tell you all of these issues and one thing that that uh, caught my attention was um, this dichotomy between how you mentioned we're all scrambling for funds and we're trying to get money to do what we think is right and a lot of the funding is aimed towards scaling right to making things bigger and bigger and at the same time you talk about how the local context and involving all the stakeholders is so important that it can and it usually collapses after a few years is there a alignment here do you think that scaling is bad um i i suppose yes 
I think, you know, simpler the better. Um, less is more, all of that. Um, and I think it also then, it, it does limit you to a certain extent, which is great, then nobody basically gets greedy sort of a thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I don't think this is something I would want to sort of comment on. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Yeah. I don't want people uh, <laughs> stoning me. <laughs> yeah, I think this is uh, this is going to be one of those questions that everyone has to think about at some point in their careers, right? I mean, whether to stay locally or like pick something small and scale it up, stay in one place and go deep. I mean, again, like, you know, it comes off as sounding very diplomatic, but I doubt that there's actually only one way to do it. I guess it's also like the philosophy of conservation that you come from. Um, yeah. But, you know, like also building upon what you were saying earlier about how, you know, sea turtles and people are kind of what have kept you focused for so long. And we were also starting to talk about a lot of the practical side of things in doing this work. Um, you've also written, you know, about how many people you included, and I know Akshay and I included, you know, we all start off very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, right? And we we think that being a biologist or an ecologist of any kind means you get to work with wildlife and, you know, directly with these species. And it's all very exciting when you're just starting off your career or reading about it or studying it. Um, but on-ground realities are so different. And especially if you want to go beyond just biology, you actually end up having to work so closely with human beings, uh, and which is a bit ironic sometimes because many people who get into this field feel like, oh, we like animals more than people. And then you end up having to work with people. Um, <laughs> so when did this realization strike you? And what, what has this been like? I think there were multiple moments. Um, I'm going to sound so naive, but um, you know, when I started my master's, I went with this, like you said, you know, went with that mindset that yes, you know, I want to work on this species or this habitat or this particular ecosystem and save the world, save the cheerleader sort of a thing. Um, and it during the course of my master's, you know, I had a lot of uh, lot of classmates who were quite elder to me, like almost 13, 14 years elder to me with vast experiences. Um, and a lot of them from developing countries like in Latin America and um, Southeast Asia and all. So, and, and we had these two compulsory social science modules in our first semester, which I was like, okay, fine, you know, compulsory, I'll just somehow get it over with and then get to the core of my master's, which is more natural sciences. But it was these discussions during the social sciences modules, you know, the like my classmates and professors would have these debates. Um, uh, I don't want to say this, but like my professors were all, you know, from the UK. So their experiences are kind of different from what my classmates had experienced. Um, and that's when they would talk a lot about, you know, how communities are important, like conservation aside, you know, communities are equally important. And we need to take into consideration, you know, how they work and all of that. And it was during those sort of discussions that I, you know, I started thinking about it. And I was like, ah, damn it, I come from the second, like the most populous country in the world. Um, this is something that I might clearly run into during the course of my work. Um, so perhaps I need to like pay a little more attention to it and not be 
you know, blind to it or just be ignorant of it. Um, so I audited a class on community-based conservation, um, even like in the next semester and things like that. Um, so I had heard of, you know, all my friends' experiences and, you know, learned sufficiently what the methods are and all of that. But obviously, when it was time to do my thesis, I was like, ah, natural sciences, let's go. <laughs> um, but so that was the first time. And the second time was when I actually started doing the fieldwork for my thesis, you know, and I was volunteering at that hatchery and eventually, you know, became familiar with the people that worked at the hatchery and the owner. And I used to have like, you know, a lot of conversations because I, I used to ask him how we got into this and what inspired him or his father who actually started it. And over time, I came to realize that, you know, there was this sort of a symbiotic relationship um, where they were helping sea turtle conservation. Um, but at the same time, the sea turtles were helping these guys get um, livelihoods. Um, and they used to earn really well because of, you know, tourism. And I think everyone knows at this point, sea turtle hatcheries are one of the you know, hotspots, must-see kind of a thing when you visit Sri Lanka. Um, because of this, you know, a lot of them were barely educated. They knew languages like, you know, German and Russian and Hindi and all of that. Um, and that's when it sort of started, like, it struck me that, you know what, there's, there is this relationship that's going on. Uh, especially when the communities live so close to or, you know, with the wildlife. Um, it's, it's very important to take into consideration their roles and how they can contribute and benefit from it. And of course, you know, after that, when I started working in Orissa, um, you know, there were certain field assistants who were from the uh, local villages again, you know, super passionate people and, you know, um, Velas, you know, where uh, ecotourism has helped conservation and livelihoods and things like that. And, you know, with every experience, it just became so much more clear that you can try, you can try super hard to separate the two, um, but one is dependent on the other. And especially even in terms of research, you know, I think um, we can do all our data collection and, you know, we can have all our statistics in place and things like that. But um, ever since these experiences, I've also realized that it's so much better to sort of back it up by just, you know, talking to the local people because they have so much information, you know, they've grown up around these areas or watching these things. Um, and they have so much information and so many interesting things that you cannot find out just by, you know, going out every night on the beach and collecting your data. Um, and it also prepares you for, you know, what's to come during the course of your field work, or sometimes it might just give a completely new direction to what you're planning to study, um, which, you know, animals or plants can't do. They can't come and possibly tell you that we're going to do this. So I think human beings are definitely an asset when it comes to our work. And um, yeah, we should take into consideration their involvement and, you know, perhaps even help them out if we can. But, um, and I think they enjoy that too, you know, just speak to them and they feel so nice. They feel like, okay, somebody is 
you know somebody is considering me an expert on these things and you're like but you are you know you've lived there for so long you are an expert more than us for sure so yeah it it again it was all an experience based thing um but i i have come to sort of treasure all these experiences and you know henceforth also i i do want to include some component of you know working with humans um i don't think human beings are easy to work with um, but uh, yeah at the same time they are valuable so it's important yeah i i i cannot agree with you more and i i see so i, I empathize with that uh, transition so much like going in with natural history and realizing that you know <laughs> it's the people who have all who, who have your hypotheses your hypotheses should come from the local community you might test them how you do it but uh, yeah uh, and with this i have a follow up now is this coming of age ceremony of sorts right where you get in spend 3 years uh floundering in this this uh, imagined space of i'm going to change the world and then you get you get you know more zen grounded by field realities can we can we shorten this for people coming into this field through uh training uh, things like that absolutely you know like i said when we even started this podcast i think it's i'm so glad you guys are doing this because you know in your classes you will have your theory down you know you will have all your id and this and that you will be great at that but once you go to field um it just it just changes you and especially in our field where we're not just you know biologists ecologists or conservationists but we also have to be like an administrator a project manager people personal manager and um driver and you know just multiple different things at the same time um and i think a lot of people you know even us for that matter when i'm i'm pretty sure you know when even you guys were sort of entering this field you were not completely aware of all the other things that come along with just doing the science of it right um and i think that is something of course which is not taught in our classrooms but at the same time i think even as professionals i don't think you know through i mean now with like blogs and stuff people have been sharing their experiences which i think is great um but i know i mean i myself uh don't quite share all the grievances that actually happen you know during my field work or just generally also even in my non field work time um and it's just all pretty you know beautiful photos and pretty blue water and all the nice things that get highlighted but not actually how you got that photo um how many days you had to wait to get that photo how many mosquitoes you had to endure to get that photo and things like that but yeah i i definitely feel i think you know everywhere there has to be at least one course which is just about like what it is to be a field biologist um because again there's just like this romanticized version of it um which is not the real version um and also apart from that there also needs to be like this um somebody needs to preach that conservation may not always be successful and that's okay um and we had from during my masters we had this one course where you know the guy told us like this 
beautiful story of some birds in Hawaii where there were just like four or five individuals left and all these scientists went in to like save the species and all of that. And we were like, oh my God, you know, this might be a conservation success story and the species must be saved now and thriving and all of that. He was like, no, um, you know, some of the birds ended up actually dying and um, the species eventually went extinct. And it shook us because we were like, this is not what you teach conservation students. You should be telling us happy stories, you know. Um, but they were like, no, you don't, conservation's not all about happiness. You need to be okay with the fact that sometimes it might not work out. You know, you just appreciate your work, um, take a step back, cry it. Of course, you know, everyone needs to uh, cry once in a while for sure. Um, but at the same time, you know, be practical about things at the end of the day and go for it. And yeah, I think in India, we do need it because I have spoken to a lot of, you know, um, 20 somethings or like teenagers who are really interested in getting into um, wildlife biology or marine biology. Um, but, you know, they are completely unaware of what they're actually getting into. And that makes it difficult, you know, when they have that first experience, um, because if they are unaware, then their experience is going to be really bad uh, for some, uh, for those who are quite hardy and, you know, flexible, it's fine. But again, you know, you need to take into consideration people who aren't. Um, and then you don't want them to leave with a bad taste in their mouth, you know. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think every wildlife course in India especially needs to have at least one, even just like guest lecturers coming in and talking about their experiences in different sort of ecosystems, you know, because again, working in terrestrial is very different from marine. Uh, like, I'm, you know, Ishika has waded through forests. I, I hope there weren't any leeches or anything, but if there were, then, you know, it's, it's not fun, but you got to do it, right? Um, Whereas uh, for us, it's relatively easy. <laughs> I don't know about easy. I mean, I think you guys also have a lot of sand flies to deal with and a whole other uh, bunch of <laughs> logistical issues that we don't have to face, which actually, you know, um, I'm going to ask you to describe to our listeners what it's like, not so maybe not a day on the beach or a night on the beach rather because of the turtle work, uh, you know, with what you do, because it's so different from the actual uh, footwork that you do in a terrestrial system. Like both Akshay and I have worked in forested areas or even some of the semi-urban areas. Um, but of course the challenges are very different, but I'm sure there are challenges even in the marine side of things. I'm sure it's not easy. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I think it's, I, I don't know, I think it's definitely easier than what your terrestrial folks have to go through. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I have to talk about my experiences, you know, I um, when I was uh, doing this research assistantship in Costa Rica, um, so we had to monitor like a four mile stretch of the beach um, and one side of the beach would go towards the river mouth and the other side would go towards the um, national park. Now, the beauty of both these sides was, so per night we would monitor only one side, like one team would monitor one side. And the beauty of these two sides was, 
whichever side you go, there's going to be either sand flies or mosquitoes. So you have to take your pick. And there was one night where I was given the river mouth side, like one night after the other. So two nights in a row, I go to that side. And those sand flies are horrible, horrible. Like we would be completely covered with just our eyes open so that, you know, we could see the turtles and tag them and write and things like that. But those sand flies, as soon as you would turn the your flashlight on, they would just be on me. And after two nights, this entire part around my eyes was swollen. Um, I was worried. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, thankfully, they gave me a break because they were like, okay, you know, you clearly need a night off. Otherwise, a third night in a row with mosquitoes or, or sand flies, something horrible is going to happen. And it was, you know, it was such a hindrance in your work because you're working, you know, you're having a great time. Beaches are great, but uh, you have these sand flies. The other exciting thing that happened in Costa Rica, which has never happened to anyone I know, is um, so for sea turtle nests, you have to dig out the contents once the hatchlings have left to measure the success. And that's what we used to do um, in during the daytime. Uh, and this one time, a friend of mine, she had like this strange line across her arm. And at first we thought, you know, it might just be like some mosquito bite, which is inflamed or something swollen. We didn't pay much attention. Over the days, that line started getting longer and it was like an actual bump under her skin. Okay. And we're like, okay, maybe she needs to get this checked. And she did only to realize that it was a parasite um, that was sort of eating, you know, under the top layer of her skin and growing longer. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, it was basically like monsters inside of me happening. Um, and then, you know, then they asked all of us to check our bodies for, and it turned out that out of eight of us, six of us had it. Um, one person had like on three parts, her arms and both her thighs. And these are parasites we picked up while digging the nests out, apparently deposited by the, you know, feral dogs there through their feces and whatnot. And we were like, in my wildest dreams, I never imagined with sea turtles, I'd pick up some random parasites and whatnot. Um, but yeah, you know, when I think about it, I think fieldwork for me has generally been quite cozy and fun and a lot of excitement. I think if I think only the bad things that have happened is once or twice, like I've fallen on the beach because of these turtle unsuccessful nests, but because they are super deep and, you know, you try, you can try and see at night, but sometimes, you know, your vision just fails you and just like go down into the earth. Um, or fieldwork fails for me has been mainly because of weather like this one time when we went off when we went to do um offshore monitoring of turtles um that was one of the days when i was kind of sure that i was probably not going to make it back alive to land because the sea got super choppy the entire time i was just looking at the shore and wondering how much time it'll take me to swim to shore if i have to get out of this situation and stuff but yeah, these are rare occurrences. I think I, I 
do you think us marine folks are a little spoiled um because it is relatively easier for us you know um i won't say that any romantic walks um those walks always end up being something or the other ends up happening um but nothing too drastic um oh we uh, ran into some poachers um in costa rica as well um but yeah um nothing too life threatening but um yeah field work for me has always been fun um you know it's it's either involved like walking on the beaches which is always great um or you know snorkeling or diving which again is a lot of fun i think you know if you take enough precautions if you're careful um nothing can kind of go wrong and yeah just being mindful of things around you but yeah trust me i think you guys need to shift to marine terrestrial <laughs> is is very tough you always have like all this foliage to get across with your machetes or whatnot. <laughs> so. oh man yeah no it's actually it's just so nice to even just listen to what it's like to do some of this marine field work because um i mean like you know i also almost wanted to get into a marine field and it's like any i think anybody who goes on one good dive is just so so mesmerized um and yeah i think it's it's wonderful that one can actually do that all their lives it's it's a wonder more people don't do it <laughs> <laughs> I know but I think like I said Ashika you should make a switch you know because um, trust me like on during my field work I've seen a jaguar okay like I was working on sea turtle monitoring I've seen jaguars <laughs> wow. um mistaken it for a dog but that's fine <laughs> <laughs> um thankfully I was accompanied by my coordinator who told me to like stop and not get enthusiastic about some large dog um <laughs> but yeah you know when you go on dives and stuff you get to see not just the species or that little invertebrate or whatever you're working on but you know on on a single dive i've seen rays i've seen sharks i've seen turtles there's all this life just zooming past you whereas at terrestrial you have to have your binoculars you have to turn over a rock you have to like, <laughs> cut down some plants to go through if you are in some rainforest or jump sure akshay must have experience have some leeches jumping on you um and what not so yeah i, I don't think as marine folks <laughs> had to suffer through too much of these things it's been great <laughs> <laughs> yeah you you've got me feeling quite existential now i'm going to rethink my career options at the end of our recording <laughs> um <laughs> but you know it's also going to bring me to maybe something which i spent a lot of time thinking about when uh, even at the time where i was seriously thinking about uh, you know looking at the marine side of things which was it's it's interest it's an interesting dichotomy because it can in some ways be very isolating because like we were saying earlier it's very local all your efforts whether it's with the communities or the species you're working with but at the same time marine systems are the most globally connected systems i mean everything is in a way connected and the same uh, species that you see on one beach today could be traveling to another continent the next day and you know bringing so much uh, you know geography and biology from the the rest of the world with it uh, perhaps before the next time you see that individual again um 
so how, how do you how does one navigate this as a marine biologist you know because you're constantly kind of having to juggle between something that's very context specific very local but at the same time the issues that you are tackling are very global issues right no i you know it is difficult um and I, you do end up getting into this mindset where you're just focusing at that site and that species at that site because that's the most you can do right um especially like you said you know sea turtles or sharks and all these all these other animals they just migrate for them there are no boundaries so it's not they don't think that i'm foraging in india and nesting in maybe pakistan or whatever for them they're just like i'm going from point a to point b um but going back to what i had answered earlier you know i always think of the like the marine world as as pune um as like when it comes to people because everyone knows everyone or everyone knows somebody who knows someone um and when it comes to working together or in terms of collaboration i think it gets easier and that sort of gives you a good feeling to a certain extent because you know that okay you know you are doing your part from your end um and if you have the right collaborators and good collaborators you know they'll do their part on the other end and especially now with you know um terrestrial it's easy because it's accessible for most part um with marine it's largely unexplored or cannot be explored by you know somebody like me um so again that kind of limits us because there's only so much we can do and only so far we can go um it also gives you that es- escapist sort of um, attitude where you're just like oh you know i can't go there i can't do that there um but um, at the same time yeah it's it's not easy it's definitely not easy um but you just think that in this place at this time with this species or habitat i am going to do the most that i can um hoping that the person on the other side is also doing the same and i think most places across the world are at this point um you know which is which is a great thing um i think each day there are just growing numbers of people who've started realizing the importance of marine conservation in general um and are contributing towards it you know one way or the other even if it's just one fisherman somewhere you know who's sensitive about these issues he he has the capacity or the power to convert 10 more people um and even that little bit that they can do is conservation in itself so um yeah i i think it's it's important sometimes to think local um before you think global um and yeah you know attend enough conferences and meetings and you know okay there is a global going on there um and that that's a good feeling yeah um i think segueing from there to what you currently do uh i was just wondering i i i saw on on your web profile that uh, you're studying the impact of diving on coral reefs which is a very uh if i could put in the context of what you just said it's a local thing but it's probably a global phenomena where you know everywhere it's happening uh can you tell us more how does diving impact coral reefs so i think okay i'm going to start from the basics you know coral reefs as we all know um have 
the biggest threat to coral reefs is global warming, climate change, you know, all the El Nino events. Then, of course, you know, we have marine pollution, you have coastal construction, you have all this um, shipping and this and that, which is just adding to the stress that, you know, climate change is already causing. Um, now, diving is, is not that big a threat, you know, but the problem is when you have something like El Nino events that are happening, you know, thrice in a decade, or, you know, you have an increase in the development in a certain area or marine pollution, um, even the little contribution that diving makes is large, um, especially now with, you know, diving becoming more accessible earlier on, it wasn't so accessible, you know, it was also quite expensive for a lot of people. But of course, over time, there are a lot of takers for it, um, which has opened a whole new market of dive tourism. Um, and, you know, a lot more dive operators uh, now function across different sites, which basically then, you know, there's a competition. So they reduce their rates, so they get more clients and therefore you have more people coming in and diving. Um, now, the problem with this also is diving is great and everything, but, you know, in order to, um, improve the tourism aspect of it, you know, you also have these uh, DSDs, which is Discover Scuba, which is great because it does allow you to experience it without having to go through the entire training, which again, you know, the training is expensive. Um, so the DSD does allow you to, you know, quickly get a glimpse of what it's like underwater, or even just understand if you would be comfortable underwater. But the thing is, when you put in a lot of trainees or a lot of people who you don't know whether they're uncomfortable underwater in these fragile systems, um, there is bound to be some damage or the other. Again, we all think coral reefs or, you know, associated animals or sea turtles and fishes, we all think they might be hardy and so strong, this and that. But the matter of fact is they aren't. Um, and then if you have all these, you know, five, six people who are getting trained, but at the same time, they are kicking corals and breaking corals or like touching them, uh, causing some harm or the other, um, it's going to have an impact. Um, and so with diving, it was, you know, since the 90s, in fact, there were studies that had started cropping up from different parts of the world from like the Great Barrier Reef to Philippines, Red Sea, um, in the Caribbean, like Bahamas and whatnot, where they realized that in its own little way, diving is, uh, you know, having a negative impact on the coral reef ecosystem in the areas. Um, and the beauty of all these studies was they actually employed different methods. Um, they looked at different things. You know, there were comparisons between heavily used sites and uh, barely used sites. Um, they looked at diver behavior underwater. They looked at um, how the dive briefing can influence diver behavior underwater and things like that. Um, and it was seen that in a lot of areas where there's more diving, um, you find a lot of dead coral or broken corals. Um, there's higher prevalence of coral diseases. Um, some even started looking at, you know, behavior of associated fishes. Um, so they found out that there were fewer number of fish at a site, which was highly like 
popular dive site compared to one that wasn't. Um, and sort of coming to the Indian context, you know, every day we're seeing um, a lot of nowadays, a lot of people have these beautiful underwater photos and things like that, which is evidence in itself that diving is picking up quite a bit in India. Um, but at the same time, we have all these fragile ecosystems like, like the Lakshadweep or in the Andaman and Nicobars, you know, where the coral reefs are already facing a lot, a lot of threat and all development that is all. And um, there's already, like, we already know what we are getting into. Um, and I think diver community in itself is quite aware um, of the do's and don'ts, so to speak. For example, you know, there's Project Aware, which works across the world to, uh, in terms of diver conduct underwater or just um, reducing marine debris and things like that. So while the diver community is aware, you know, we're still, we're bound to make some mistakes once in a while. Because um, again, the underwater is a completely foreign world. Um, and, you know, panic-induced movements and things like that. And therefore, we sort of, you know, looked at all these things and saw how it is something that we at least need to check if it has any impact. If it doesn't, that's great. Um, you know, that's actually the best news. But if there is, I think it's very important for us to just kind of put the word out that, you know, we need to be a lot more aware than how much we are right now, especially especially tourists, you know, for us as ecologists, at some point, you know, it's been drilled into our head that we need to be more aware of our surroundings, we need to respect our surroundings and all of that. But I think, you know, responsible tourism is something that we need to really, really highlight as we go forward. Um, and especially as instances of all these other threats just keep on increasing and, you know, worsening the situation. Um, and of course, you know, our own experiences, I think anyone who's gone diving, the first one or two dives have definitely been where you've come extremely close to coral, only to realize you're too close and then you move away. Or, you know, you've seen someone wanting to touch a fish or just do something that they should not be doing and try to scream underwater at them. Um, and things like that, you know, so I, I think it's, again, a very experience based thing, because we've all experienced this at one point or another. Um, and, you know, then that is sort of helping us ensure that, you know, hopefully it's not happening. So let's see. No, this is so important. This reminds me in a terrestrial context. Uh, there's also extensive research, I think research also uh, going back to the same site uh, there's interviewee fatigue in the social sciences i'm sure there's ecological fatigue when you're constantly interacting with certain landscapes uh, so yeah uh, i think this uh, sounds interesting we'll probably get back to you on another episode where to hear the results of this that's only if i get to um, go to lakshadweep but oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no, it's it's amazing how many layers there are to every problem, right? I mean, on one hand, you want to be, want people to go and look at what's underwater, at what's there, and how you know 
they need to care about the life that's underwater as well but getting them underwater can also be harmful for that uh, entire ecosystem it's kind of like a catch 22 um, but it's it's great to know that you guys are actually trying to figure out like you said if that is even a problem that we need to be worried about to begin with and um, yeah i can i can definitely think of at least five instances where i have gone way too close to coral or accidentally had to grab onto a tiny piece of coral when the <laughs> when us mm. when the current is trying to pull me away and uh, yeah I, i i mean i really wonder if what harm i've done and i'm sure so many others have and, um, and it makes me think a lot about uh, the tourism in goa as well where there are so many of these uh, dunk divers where they just kind of plop you into the water for a few minutes take a mm-hmm. picture and get you out of there and you never know how yeah. that person is going to behave underwater or what they're going to do to the life around them you're right you know it's that it, i think it's called tea bag diving um, ah yes and apparently you know has a lot more impact um, than your regular because train divers are like i said you know they are quite aware of these things and they are very sensitive uh, towards these things but again you know put uh, people in an unfamiliar situation for the first time and you don't know what's going to be the end <laughs> result so yeah i think we're coming to uh, the end of the podcast and this has been great and uh, we wish we could keep talking uh, but we we'll probably have you back next time uh, i think to wrap up i i was wondering you brought up something right at the beginning you spoke about how important your support system uh, with your parents and your friends were and also at your university and and that passion which was infectious uh and we see how important that is for so many people i mean i guess this is a truism it's true in all fields it depends uh, you make or break a subject in school or your career choice based on your interactions with people uh based on your experience do you think there are things that we can do to make that experience better for people to realize that the initial the first failure is not uh, doesn't mean there's a next failure following and uh, how has your life experience sort of uh, taught you that i think we need to start off by normalizing the fact that there's no one way to go about things um you know it was something acceptable or generally you know the best thing to do earlier on where you know you do your studies you perhaps do your phd you do your postdoc then you've made it in your life sort of a thing so i think to start off we need to normalize the fact that you can do your phd or not do your phd it's fine um whether you do your phd right after your masters or 3 years later or 5 years later or even 20 years later for that matter it's fine um and i think just being a little forgiving um you know allowing that other person to be the way they are because you know especially when you're coming into a new field like i said earlier you come with rose tinted glasses and you have this uh, completely wrong view of how things are going to pan out and then if you have a supervisor or an immediate senior who's just waiting to like pounce on you on every word you say you're just going to leave with a bad experience even if your experience on field was great um just that interaction with people is going to you know make you feel bad and perhaps rethink whether you even want to be around and i think as 
you know, as we ourselves are getting senior in this field and we have our interns or, you know, we're supervising MSc students and all, I think we need to be really um, forgiving and really careful that, you know, they have just got in. Um, let's sort of mentor them, let them reach that comfortable stage. See, over time, we all learn, you know, it's not like the three of us got into this field prepared and, you know, we just knew how to behave and what to do and what to say and things like that. Um, but I think the right kind of mentorship also, you know, just having someone who is mentoring you in a nice way also, not just telling you all the right things, but telling you the right things in a nice way and not trying to demean you at every step. You know, giving people what they deserve, whether it's monetarily. And I think unfortunately, because we are in such a new field or, or a field that's still kind of growing in the country, um, there is that, you know, it's it's kind of lacking when it comes. And it's and I think that's also a reason why we don't have a lot of people who are really interested, even though they're interested, you know, they're hesitant to join because they perhaps do not come from a background that allows them to take up their passion so freely. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's just a bunch of these things that uh, that definitely need to change. And I think they are changing again. I think, you know, our generation is again a lot more aware of these things. Of course, we have our own flaws, um, but in terms of improvement, because, you know, we all have been through something or the other, um, we are being sensitive to it when we are, you know, working with our interns and, um, you know, students. Um, so it, again, it's getting better, but of course, the rate at which it will get better will take its own time. And hopefully in our lifetimes, we will get to see, you know, a really good work environment in general. Um, and um, I'm going to plug in SCCS at this point, but I think um, one of the aims of SCCS is to make it, um, you know, not have a hierarchy, but everyone is at the same level, whether you're a student or an early career researcher, or even a full professor at some prestigious institute, you know, everyone should be able to talk to one another, share ideas, uh, speak freely, regardless of, you know, your background or your experience and things like that. Um, and yeah, I think, like I said earlier, over time, it'll definitely get better. And and again, you know, people like us, we are, we will sort of bring about that change. And, and I, I know we're all working towards that in our own little ways. So, yeah. Uh, glad you brought it up uh, because in one of our previous episodes with uh, uh, Krishna Priya Tamma, we spoke extensively about SECS as well. So SECS is the student conference for uh, conservation science, which happens uh, almost every year in Bangalore. And, and it's one of the few hubs where, you know, uh, people all across India can come and meet some of the experts in the field. Uh, and it's amazing the kinds of steps that uh, the conference is taking and it's uh, to make things inclusive and uh, uh, sort of reduce the information asymmetry that exists. And uh, it's clear that we need to not just restrict it to a conference, but make it our work ethic uh, in, in wherever we work. So how, how I just want to uh, follow up since you mentioned SCCS, I think it's worth talking about it. Uh, it's it's it seems like a lot of people, for many people, it's a labor of love, and uh, and and at the same time, 
you have to kill your babies as they say <laughs> when you write uh, so uh, how has it been trying to uh, change with the times uh, uh, adapt adapt to technology and uh, and all of the things that we discussed uh, with um, making this field more uh, inclusive and approachable for young people Sorry, how has it been uh, getting SCCS online? Is that your question? Uh, yes, for, for, for COVID as well, but also like changing the time because I'm guessing it was very different when it started, right? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, you know, it, again, SCCS is such a great learning experience, um, regardless of whether you're a volunteer or an organizer or whatever. Um, you know, there are so many things that we would like to do um and every year we do try to bring in something new and you know i think the pre conference module was such a great example of that where um people from communities who are passionate about conservation or wildlife but uh, for one reason or the other cannot do not have that scientific training so to speak um and i think pre conference module sort of brought in that and has done such a great job at it um but it it is challenging you know even even when we are deciding what to do and how much to do there's always some restriction or the other um we also almost every year we realize that even though scs has a decent reach um it's it's still not reaching out you know folks that live in like smaller towns and things like that um especially now you know because kids from cities like bangalore and pune and chennai delhi all this everything said and done they have a lot more exposure um not just because of internet but also you know because they get chances to do like internships and things like that um but it it's been challenging to sort of trying to reach out to that um audience uh, which is sort of removed from the city uh, areas um and you know we're just trying to find different ways whether we need to up our um advertising abilities uh whether we should reduce um the amount of money uh, that we charge as registration you know increasing the number of bursaries so that you know uh spending money is not an issue because that is usually what is like what tends to restrict people um at the same time you know we've also sort of thought about having certain sessions in um you know local languages but then again in india it's so difficult um thinking outside of india because uh you know africa and other south asian countries um how can we include them because uh, well bangalore is sort of in the center of all these places so how can we in, in sort of improve and increase that audience um and you know every year in smaller we are taking like baby steps to sort of cover these things but uh, it all comes down to funding it all comes down to money you know you know because it's such a great platform and we have great partners and you know all all these senior folks are so involved in it and all those workshops are just incredible so we want to make it something more um but you know there's always that one limiting factor but we are trying to you know make it more than what it is or what it has been um one step at a time and yeah i i don't know if 
in my tenure as an OC, there'll be big changes, but over time, you know, maybe in the next five years or so, we'll definitely see SCCS become bigger and a lot more inclusive than what it is already. Um, we've realized that, you know, perhaps moving things online could also be an asset for certain things. Um, because surprisingly, like last year when SCCS went online and we ended up getting really good number of registrations and, you know, abstracts and all of that, which was really nice to see because clearly, you know, people love SCCS. Um, so they are willing to sort of rough it out, even if we open abstracts just for two weeks kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, you know, we got good feedback and a lot of them actually said that it will be easier for them if things certain things move online um and you know it'll be easier for them to access it from the comforts of their homes and things like that but again the it it boils down to not just sort of the physical uh, financial aspect of it but also um our capabilities at the end of the day um we would love to do a hybrid if possible um, but, you know, a conference is all about networking. It's all about actually meeting people and talking to them. And I personally did not enjoy this online thing because um, I prefer meeting face to face and having a proper conversation with them. Um, and I think online, it's just so alien. Um, but yeah, a lot of people appreciated it and actually enjoyed it. So, you know, we are we're thinking that, okay, we should probably make use of that and hopefully move few things online. Um, I mean, things like plenaries and all can definitely be, you know, um, they can be shown live on YouTube and whatnot, um, but maybe perhaps other sessions also, if it's doable and if it does, you know, give the output that we desire and, you know, everyone comes away happy and, with some positive output. So yeah, let's see. Yeah, I think uh, you're definitely right in the sense that we are in general moving towards something which looks a lot more hybrid. And I think considering we've been forced to do some things online for a much longer period than we initially were expecting, um, we've just, I think a lot of it has just become a very natural part of our day to day. And I think we're also getting very used to doing things from home and uh, perhaps even things like the financial constraints of travel and accommodation, which perhaps many people who don't get bursaries cannot afford to take on the online platform also fixes some of that perhaps. So I think it'll be definitely very interesting to see where we go from here because I think in the last year has also showed us how much good the online can platform can give. So even if we end up finally, uh, hopefully soon at a point where we don't necessarily have to be online, maybe we'd still choose to, um, considering some of those pros that we've uh, discovered in the past year. Uh, including this podcast. I mean, I don't think we would have managed to pull this off if, it, if everyone wasn't getting used to doing online calls on Zoom. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I think last year was a great tutorial for all of us uh, in you know doing things online I, I'm sure even you guys felt uncomfortable initially while doing webinars and stuff where you were like can you hear me can you see yeah. me <laughs> uh, just thinking you're presenting to an audience that's not even there or perhaps not seeing what you're seeing but um, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's incredible we've learned so much <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. I think even the tiniest things uh, of human interaction that we took for granted, you suddenly realize uh, are completely missing. Um, I, I think the first uh, webinar I had to do online, I was pointing at my screen saying, oh, so you see this? And then I realized, wait, nobody can see what I'm pointing at. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can one-up you this. My first webinar... I, so I started sharing my screen or I thought I was sharing my screen and I just started talking about it, you know. And then at one point I was talking about the graph that was on my screen. Um, and then the guy who was hosting it was like, wait, what graph? Are you sharing anything? And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, no. Now you tell me like 10 minutes into the conversation, you're asking me if I'm sharing anything. I thought I was. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was just talking to the audience for the first 10 minutes. And later my parents were like, oh no, we thought you weren't planning to show any presentation. We thought you were just going to talk. <laughs> so I was like, okay, great. I think I pulled it off somehow. <laughs> At least everyone's very forgiving online. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, I think, um, you know, this is as good a time as any to uh, hit pause on this conversation. And like Akshay said, we'd hopefully uh, have you back to tell us more about the work you're currently doing and the hope that you'll... Hope you'll get to go to Lakshadweep soon and come back with more stories for us. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks so much for talking to us. This has been such fun. Thank you so much. Like I said, you know, have, um, yeah, Lakshadweep stories. There are too many. Um, yeah. And I would love to just sit down with you guys, maybe not online also, and just talk about these things. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much this is great great thanks a lot yeah. guys have a good day you too you too we had a great time recording this episode we hope you enjoyed it too thanks for listening